Okay. This will be a bit of a sprawl because I'm traveling and lots of things are coming to me all at once. But um, there was an interesting, to me, furore on the policing, Ubalde, Texas. That's how the Spanish say it, Ubalde, otherwise. Why didn't they go in? Why didn't they risk their lives, shoot the shooter once between the eyes like they do in the movies? All the anchors on all the medias look at us with mouths open in their ever more frequent foe or real astonishment, and all their expert guests turn and look with them at us, all with that perplexity usually reserved for Europeans bombing other Europeans, never when Europeans bomb Arabs, Yemenis, or Iraqis, as if the most violent country country of the advanced nations cannot grasp these levels of nasty. What is the world coming to when heroes don't do like heroes should do in our tiny imaginations? When Gabby Giffords and others were shot up in a mall in Phoenix, I heard, it wasn't all over the news, but I heard that the man who intervened and disarmed the murderer was a licensed gun owner who was carrying that day. He saw what was happening, went into a store in the mall, gave the assistant his loaded handgun to hold for him, waited till the shooter needed to reload, rushed in, unarmed, disarmed him. Or... A good guy without a gun and a brain knows better than to go into an armed conflict with guns blazing. No, it's not like the movies. I haven't really covered the coverage by the mythologizers, but I haven't seen the usual experts say, no, actually what happened in Ubaldi, to use the original name, might just be standard procedure. This is one of the consequences of allowing a gun enthusiast like Antonin Scalia to misinterpret an amendment so blatantly and a population so willingly authoritarian it can no longer read to run the chicken coop. Rushing a person with a fully loaded AR-15 makes the death count go up geometrically. Let me say it again. Rushing a person with a fully loaded AR-15 makes the death count go up geometrically, including you, the Russia. Not just a heroic, insane policeman, but the children too. Perhaps a Ubaldi policeman will have the nerve to say this. Perhaps they will be told, no, we will punish these cops and maintain the myth of protect and serve, put in peril. The good guy with a gun beats a bad guy with one every time, better known as the McConaughey plan. No, I say no. This is nigh as destructive as telling the truth of the various American histories. So the hideous truth, this is what an armed citizenry looks like in the future, dummies. To change the subject... More knocks on the rich or how to be the least free. A few years ago, I came out of a kind of seclusion before the pandemic, a seclusion of my kind of my kind of work allows during which, though technically out of work, I do maybe my most useful or valuable work. Anyway, I had to go into the city. 
it might have been any city, it was Manhattan, in which I do not live full time, but have access to. And when I'm doing the work that pays as distinct from valuable work, a London or Manhattan is necessary, a New Orleans or a Florence. I think New York, NYC, doesn't make geniuses by only allowing the very talented to survive, please, but any metropolis from ancient Athens, where city life was the bones of democracy, generates a creature different from the man alone. The person unprotected goes out their front door into a communal hall, elevator, staircase, lobby, out onto the streets to walk into the subway, to ride, always surrounded by people, and it is good. I know one of the appeals of wealth is that one can choose to not be surrounded by people, especially those who are not grateful to you for their living, your subservience. There is plenty of subservience in NYC, depending on where you live, in it, especially around the house. But get out of your limo and you are a pro. And if you are not of the wealthy frame of mind, you can be in the best, you can be in for the best of times. Or everyone is an aristocrat, from the pizza joints to kids banging on buckets, one is surrounded by brave life. Manhattan is more this way, as I've discovered, like Athens, more than any other by a curious accident, maybe being an island. It has a sprawl across the rivers, but the island does another thing. London is a series of villages, Paris of palaces, Rome is unorganized, and New York-like, full of Italians who seem to have surrendered to reality that life is good and not worth removing oneself from. That's one of the motivations for being rich. I understand the desires to be rich. One of them, as I think they are many, is obviously and understandably a fear of being poor. How many obsessive wealth seekers were poor is another story, but it stands. Being poor is miserable, but then having enough is not being poor either. It seems that those who are otherwise rewarded by their work are the ones okay with enough, myself included, but it is rare and it wears thin if exploited. See teachers particularly. Having enough is not being rich, though America is stretching that fact. To have a family, health care, a place to live, transportation and college funds for when the family grows up requires a lot of money. Riches relative to London in the 70s? Yes. So... Enough would survive, suffice, but is it ever enough? And there is a plan in this. Desire number two is for the good things in life. Well, those things are not so good. They seem to be distractions for the truly miserable, the truly utterly miserable, but materializes something never the truth. It's not to not have to deal with others. And I have found dealing with others to be one of the great good things in life if not the only good thing. This subject needs deeper digging, but I am looking at the desire to be rich as a pathology. It resembles them, a pathology, an antisocial one too often confused, like high-end college degree with an illusion of superiority. And in my society, the unrich or unyailed promote the notion, a notion as ancient as the Pope's, and attended by homicide, to have riches thrust upon one, to achieve them without intending, Richard Burton, the Beatles, 
a struggle, I think, depending on the company you might be forced to keep. So, finally, oh my, well, we can drop that old delusion then. This is a piece, a piece of a piece written by Donald M. Scott, professor of history, Queens College and Graduate Center of the City of University of New York, National Humanities Center. It's a longer article. It's quite brilliant. But mostly what it does is probably stating the obvious. Uh, taps into many of my own intuitions about this particular subject, the theocracy or not of the United States. Uh, I think it is a theocracy, uh, but not a blatant one, um, a clever one. Anyway, he says, it was formerly a secular nation, though at the same time a deeply religious society sustained by divine will, whose citizens were expected to subscribe to its founding principles with religious-like devotion. In effect, what emerged was a sacralized notion of the new nation and the development of what various scholars have termed a powerful civil religion, a particular form of cultural natural nationalism to which all true Americans, whether native or immigrant-born, and whatever their personal religious beliefs and affiliations, were expected to adhere. In this sense, the United States can be considered a creedal society, unified less by geographical boundaries, which continually shifted, and more by a set of specific doctrines inscribed in the Declaration of Independence and Constitution, to which all citizens of the nation gave their allegiance. The new democratic republic, proclaimed as unique, had been ordained by God and endowed by a special mission to be the new city upon a hill to shine the beacon of liberty upon the world. And at times it deemed necessary to spread its form of democracy by force of arms to other parts of the world. Quickly were the revolutionary leaders, especially George Washington and Thomas Jefferson, elevated into founding fathers, and the Declaration and the Constitution turned into almost sacred relics. Essential to the story, of course, was the apotheosis of the godlike Washington into an American Moses who led his people out of bondage and to a land of liberty. Thus was the new nation and to some extent its people chosen. Unquote. The problem with religious devotion like this is it has no relationship to freedom or democracy whatsoever. And never has. And an honest Christian will tell you so if you can find one. We have decided that freedom and democracy are good virtues, not sins. So the church will co-opt them as terms where no such truth exists. Again, Donald M. Scott and his the full article is called The Religious Origins of Manifest Destiny. And when I first read it, I wasn't sure if he was pro the idea. I think since I've read the whole thing, uh, he's not pro the idea. He's actually, but he is an American and he is making this point. Um, and I have always, since I've, since I've lived here, since I became a naturalized citizen and I've had discussions and arguments, etc., I've always found this thing to be really creepy. This sense of 
being special, which is a religious notion. And, uh, you know, with a mission. And, uh, you know, the other people who had that were Nazis. And it's, it's the most, it's the most overwhelming flaw in the modern world where um, one is confronted by ridiculous notions of how we should all live and to be walking that blindly around in that world to be convinced as a friend of mine once said oh yes well we made a lot of mistakes like slavery and misogyny and uh, you know uh, Hiroshima Nagasaki but in the end of the day we're still better than anybody else and I mean I just you know you become dysfunctional Anyway, that's all.